Well, of all of the miracles that occurred in the Old Testament, the miracle that is mentioned the most is that of the Exodus, where God supernaturally delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. It's kind of surprising, isn't it? I mean, the miracle of the Exodus is mentioned more times than that of Noah and the ark, Jonah and the fish, or Daniel in the lion's den. And yet, there are those who deny that the Exodus ever even happened. Advocates for the no Exodus theory believe that if the Exodus really happened, then there would certainly be official Egyptian records of such a thing occurring. Their thinking kind of goes like this. I mean, come on. The story of the Exodus only shows up in the Bible, never in any official Egyptian records. It's obviously got to be a myth, right? Well, over the years, archaeology has uncovered all kinds of evidence that the Exodus did actually happen. For instance, archaeologists have discovered lists of Egyptian slave names during the time of the Exodus And among those names, there are multiple Hebrew names. Egyptian records have also discovered accounts of Egyptian officials requiring slaves to meet the same quota for brickmaking without straw. And in Egypt, there is art depicting slavery. And among those slaves depicted, there seem to be Semitic or Hebrew-looking slaves. But one discovery that has really drawn a lot of attention by scholars is something you've probably never heard of. It's called the Ipawer Papyrus. I myself had not heard of it until about a month or so ago, but it was absolutely fascinating to read about it. The Ipawer Papyrus is an Egyptian document from around the 13th century BC, and it records catastrophic destruction and chaos occurring in Egypt. In the Ipawer papyrus, there are many, many different eerie parallels with the plagues that are recorded in the book of Exodus. And so briefly, I just wanted to show you a few of these so you can see why this has caught the attention of scholars, both in the biblical realm and outside of it. According to both the Ipawer papyrus and the Exodus account, there's testimony in Egypt of a river being turned to blood and becoming undrinkable. There's also recording of great pestilence throughout the land and blood throughout the land. It's recorded that there is fire in the land, that the crops were destroyed, that there's darkness in the land, and that the children of all men, all different sort of echelons of society, including royalty, Those children, no matter how rich or poor you are, were being buried. It also is recorded both in the Ipawer Papyrus and in the Exodus account that maidservants and those who are in poverty overnight became wealthy. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know how anyone can read that list and not admit it sounds an awful lot like the Exodus account how you could read through that list and not think it at least sounds an awful lot like the Exodus account is beyond me. But whatever you make of the Ipawer papyrus, let me give you one 
simple reason this morning as to why the Egyptian records do not contain the Exodus, but the Bible does. The reason I'm going to give you this morning for why the Exodus appears in the Bible but not in official Egyptian records is this. It doesn't show up in official Egyptian records for the same reason that Jalen Hurts is not walking around right now wearing a Patrick Mahomes jersey. You see, nations, just like football teams, magnify and celebrate and revel in their victories and routinely try to ignore and forget about their losses. You see, when the God of Israel delivered the Israelites with great signs and wonders and the plagues, it was a huge W for the Jewish people. And so, naturally, they recorded it in Scripture, and they even celebrate it to this day with the Passover festival. But for the Egyptians, you got to remember, the Exodus was a huge, embarrassing L And so naturally, they would not be all too eager to want to plaster that on their monuments and documents because it was an absolutely humiliating defeat. Well, this morning, as we continue in our series in Exodus, I wanna invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 12. We're gonna be beginning in verse 31 where we will see what lessons we can learn from the miracle of the Exodus and the parting of the Red Sea. So let's begin in Exodus chapter 12, verses 31, and we're gonna be skipping around a little bit this morning because we have so much to cover, but hopefully you can follow along on the screens. Verse 31, during the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks, take your herds, as you have said, and go. And also, bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders and kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed, and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. The first thing I want you to notice this morning is simply this. Most of the time, God leads us by natural means. Doesn't matter if it's during the time of the Exodus or in 2023 as Christ followers. Most of the time, the vast majority of the time, when God leads us, he's going to do so by natural means. As we just read at the tail end there of that passage, it sticks out like a sore thumb if you're paying attention. You know, God does one miracle after another, after another, after another. Moses' staff, all the plagues, 
the death of the firstborn. And then it says, as God begins to lead his people finally out of slavery in Egypt, it says in verse 17, God does not take them by the shortest path possible. Why? For God said, if they, that is his people, face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. You see, God knew that his people, if he led them by the shortest, most, most direct path, which had this road that was well fortified with their enemies, the Philistines, God knew that his people might lose heart, might lose courage, and want to go back to Egypt. Now think about that for a minute. God's working miracle after miracle after miracle, and yet he says, I'm not gonna take them the quickest, shortest way possible. Rather, I'm gonna take them the scenic route so that they don't lose heart. Now, couldn't God have said, I'm gonna send a plague on those Philistines, and they're not gonna be anywhere to be found, and I'll take my people the shortest route? Of course. Couldn't God have instilled in his people supernatural courage to be able to face war and not turn back to Egypt? Of course he could. But for whatever reason, God does not do that. Although there's miracle after miracle after miracle here, God uses a very ordinary, practical, natural means to lead his people out. It's pretty interesting when you think about it, isn't it? A little bit later on in the history of the Jewish people, when God's finally about to bring his people into the promised land, God says something very similar. He says, when I'm finally gonna bring you into the promised land, we're not gonna defeat all your enemies in one fail swoop. Listen to what God says in Exodus 23, 28 through 29. Decades later, when the Jewish people are finally coming into this promised land, this is what God says. Exodus 23, beginning in 28. I will send the hornet ahead of you to drive the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites out of your way. Catch this now. But I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. Again, all these miracles work by God, manna, water coming from the rock, all these miracles, and yet here God says, instead of wiping out all your enemies at once, we're gonna do this practically. We're gonna do this incrementally because if I wiped them out all at once, all these predator animals would move in and the land would become uninhabitable. Well, obviously, God is sovereign over the animal kingdom. He created everything in the world. He could change, I suppose, the health or disposition of those animals, but for whatever reason, God doesn't do that. Why? Because God's MO, his usual way, is to lead us by natural means. And this is really important, I think, for us to understand as Christ followers, because some of us, some of us have big faith. Some of us believe God to do big things. Some of us believe in miracles with no hesitation, no skepticism, and that's a wonderful thing. But while we should believe that God is sovereign overall, he works miracles, and he can do whatever he wants, we need to realize his MO is he leads us through very natural means. 
I mean, even when you see God doing the miraculous over and over and over again, he oftentimes kind of just reminds us, please keep in mind, this is not the norm. I normally lead you through natural means. One more example of this found in the New Testament with the resurrection of Jairus' daughter. If you're not familiar with this in the Gospel of Luke, there's a man named Jairus whose daughter is extremely sick. He goes to find Jesus and hopes that Jesus will heal his daughter. And let's see what happens in Luke chapter eight. When he, that is Jesus, arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But Jesus took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up, and catch this now, then Jesus told them, presumably her parents, give her something to eat. That's good. God, through Christ, raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, and what's the first thing Jesus says? Something very practical, very natural. Give her something to eat. In our text this morning and throughout the scriptures, it's clear. God does break in and do the miraculous, but that's not his MO. Generally speaking, God leads us through natural means. And as a result, if God has called you to something, it's important that you do not delegate that back up to God. If you believe God has called you to be a world-class athlete, you probably shouldn't expect God to give you the strength of Samson. You should probably hit the gym. If you believe God is leading you to make a large purchase, you probably should budget and steward your money well rather than hoping to win the lottery. If you believe God has called you into ministry, you should probably look into getting confirmation about that and exploring seminary instead of expecting God to just drop it down out of the heavens because most of the time, God leads us by natural means, and it's important that we do not scorn those natural processes. I'll let you in on a little something here. A lot of the time, it takes a heck of a lot more faith to cooperate naturally with some process than it does to just sit back and hope God drops it out of the sky. Because the reality is, if I'm just sitting back passively, expecting God to work a miracle, I probably don't have that much emotional skin in the game. But on the other hand, if I'm praying, I'm asking, I'm seeking, I'm knocking, I'm taking practical steps and trying to be active in that process, then that can require a heck of a lot more faith, that emotional skin in the game, and going out on a limb that I believe God is likely to bless. And so, the first lesson we see in our passage today is this. Most of the time, God leads us by natural means. Let's continue here and pick up an just chapter 13, verse 20, and again, we're skipping around and going into chapter 14 this morning. It says this, 
After leaving Sukkoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion and they are hemmed in by the desert. Second this morning, I want you to see this from our text. Sometimes God leads us by unnatural means. We already saw most of the time God leads us by natural means, but sometimes God leads us by unnatural means. I don't know if you like exploring large cities, but that's something that my family really enjoys doing. And so if we're going to Boston or going to New York City or we're going to any large city that we're not familiar with, we love to sort of walk the city a little bit. And to me, one of the most humiliating and embarrassing moments when I'm exploring a new city is when I'm using GPS on my phone and I'm walking confidently in some direction and then my phone buzzes and I have to turn around immediately and begin walking the other direction. And I feel like every pedestrian is looking and judging me and thinking, what an idiot, this guy has no idea where he is going. I don't know if you can relate to that, but that is a really humiliating experience that I encounter a lot. This thing will tell me I'm headed in the right direction for like 40, 50 steps, and then it will buzz and I'll realize, oh, I need to turn around and take this walk of shame back in the other direction. This happens to me quite frequently. Well, that's kind of what's going on here in our text. You see, God's people have been miraculously led out of Egypt. They're kind of traveling around, and God says, I've got a great strategy. I've got an amazing plan. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to kind of wander around a little bit and then kind of hem yourself in between the desert and the sea and why don't you just go ahead and basically draw a giant target on your back, and when you do that, Pharaoh and his armies are gonna come after you. It's essentially what God does here. Nothing natural, nothing commonsensical, nothing practical about it whatsoever, and yet this is the plan of God. This is the leadership of God. Love to see a show of hands here. Feel free online to chime in in the chat. How many people here would describe themselves as being pretty practical? Any practical people here? Sensible, logical, down to earth. You like working a plan. You like having a strategy. There's many in our congregation. Be warned today. This way in which God leads, if we're not careful, for those of us that are very practical, it can be a huge stumbling block. Because there will be times as a Christ follower when he, as your Lord, commands you to do something that is not gonna seem all that practical or strategic or commonsensical. Consider Acts chapter five as an example of this, beginning in verse 17. The apostles were preaching in the temple and then they are arrested. And that's where we pick up with this particular passage. 
The high priest and his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They're jealous of this movement that Jesus started. They're jealous of the sway it's having over the people. And so they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. You with me? The apostles for preaching were arrested by the authorities, put in jail. But miraculously, during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors out of the jail and brought them out. After bringing them out, they are commanded, go back to the temple courts, stand in the temple courts, and tell the people all about this new life. And at daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told, and began to teach the people. Now, doesn't this sound like the kind of thing that would help you wind up on Israel's dumbest criminals? You get arrested for preaching the word in the temple complex. You get arrested. Miraculously, an angel frees you at night and tells you to go back to the scene of the crime to continue preaching. Folks, there is nothing practical or strategic or natural about this, and yet God commands this kind of a thing from time to time. I mean, think about Abraham, the promise of Isaac and building a nation through Isaac, and then Isaac finally is born, and some years later, God tests Abraham by seeing if he's willing to sacrifice Isaac. Think about the fact that Jesus told the rich young ruler to sell everything that you possess and come follow me. If we're going to take Christ and the Bible seriously, we have to acknowledge the fact that at least sometimes God is going to command us to do that, which is unnatural and impractical sort of these record scratch moments in my life that seem to be what I'm trying to describe today, where I've got a plan, I've got a strategy, I've put a lot of thought into something, and it's as if God goes, and scratches the record, and I sense something in my heart of hearts where I'm supposed to do something that is wildly impractical and unnatural. I have a question for you. What do you do when you have that record scratch moment and you sense God is leading you to do something unnatural and something that doesn't seem all that orthodox or practical? I think it's an important question for us to wrestle with because God has much to say about how different his way of thinking is from our way of thinking. In Isaiah chapter 55, Verses eight and nine, we hear these words. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know, if you've been a Christ follower for, let's say, five years or more, and you've never sensed God leading you to do something unnatural or something that did not seem all that practical, if you've never experienced that and followed through on it, I wanna ask you, do you have to be 
on the planning committee in order to submit to the commands of Christ? Or is he the Lord and you are the servant? There will be times, hear me, Grace Fellowship, when he commands you to do something that is unnatural. And when those times come, what we believe in our faith about what God is commanding us to do and able to accomplish, we'll be able to see quite clearly the level of our confidence. In Proverbs chapter three, verses five and six, we read this, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Do you want your paths straight? Well, when God commands you to do something that's unnatural or challenging or doesn't seem all that practical, you need to be willing to submit yourself to that. Now, obviously, I am not saying every strange, bizarre, and impractical idea that pops into your head is from the Lord, but I am saying it is a dangerous thing when an idea pops into your head that you think might be from the Lord to automatically disregard it because it's not practical or it doesn't suit your pragmatism or it might fly in the face of our culture or an accountant or an attorney. In the final analysis, Jesus is Lord and our pragmatism must bend the knee to Christ. Sometimes God does lead us by unnatural means. Third and finally this morning, I want you to pick up with me in Exodus chapter 14, beginning in verse five. Here it says, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds and said, what have we done? We had let the Israelites go and lost their services. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch it over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. And the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and their horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen and the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea Not one of them survived. Third, this morning, we learned from our passage, while it's true that most of the time God leads us through natural means, and sometimes God leads us by unnatural means, it's also true that from time to time, God leads us by supernatural means. Now, I do want you to notice this morning, I said from time to time. 
I've tried to kind of get a sense of how many miracles are recorded in the Bible, and people are kind of all over the place because there's different ways to sort of tally it up. I mean, do you take creation as one big miracle, or do you take each individual day or species as a miracle? I have no idea, but it seems that some of the counts that are out there, people say there's about 120 to maybe 160 miracles recorded in all of the Bible. Well, if there's 160 miracles recorded in all of Scripture, if you look at the time frame that that encompasses, that averages something like one miracle every 10 years. Now, I know some people believe, surely these weren't the only miracles God was working. These were his highlight reel. Maybe he was working 10 times as many miracles. Okay, fine. That's still about one miracle per year. Any way you want to slice it, the reality is the miracles are the exception. God's MO is to provide by natural means. And I believe that's why Jesus taught us in our prayers to say, not give us this day our daily miracle, but give us this day our daily bread. We should primarily be looking for God to meet our needs through secondary means, through physical means. But I say all that to say this, while it's true that miracles are the exception, our entire faith is built on the foundation of the supernatural and the miraculous. And it cracks me up when I find people who will take, let's say, the miracle of the loaves and the fish and try to explain that away naturally and say something like, well, the little boy's generosity inspired the crowds, and then they all admitted, yeah, I've got some lunch, so they all kind of spread it out, and it was a miracle of generosity, as if when you explain one miracle away, you don't have hundreds of other miracles that the Bible presents as factual as well. The bottom line is this. God does work supernaturally, and from time to time, even in our day, I firmly, firmly believe God continues to work miracles. And so if we're going to take his word seriously, we need to have an appropriate openness to the supernatural and to the miraculous in our lives. And so with the remaining few minutes that we have, we're going to address two questions briefly. The first question is this, how can I sincerely be open to the supernatural in my own life? And the second question, why does God perform miracles in the first place? Quickly, let's tackle the first question. How can we as Christ followers be sincerely open to miracles in our own lives? Let me give you three examples of how we can be open. First and foremost, believe God's word concerning miracles. That's pretty simple, isn't it? As you're reading through the scriptures and you read about the sea being parted and having walls of water, believe it. Have faith that this actually happened. Don't try to explain it away naturalistically. Take God at his word. When you read about some miracle in the past, believe it. And when you read about a miracle that will be happening in our future, like the resurrection of the dead, believe it. When you read in the Bible of miracles, 
if we're going to take it seriously and view the world and the Bible the way Jesus did, we need to take it and believe it like a child. Believe what the Bible says concerning miracles. Second, I would say, if we wanna be open to the miraculous, we need to not automatically write off people when they tell us that God did something miraculous in their lives. I don't know if you're a cynical or skeptical person by nature. I am. That tends to be my default position. I tend to be a little skeptical. I tend to be a little cynical. And so I say this to my shame in many ways. When someone tells me that God did something miraculous, the first thing that oftentimes pops up in my head is, is this person really credible? Did that really happen? Are they just connecting dots that aren't really connected? But if you're gonna take the book of Exodus as historical fact, we have no other leg to stand on. God does, from time to time, work supernaturally in the world. And so, of course, this doesn't mean we have to believe everything somebody tells us, but we should be very careful and humble about reflexively dismissing other people's stories if they report something supernatural or miraculous in their lives. God can and does work miracles, and we need to have an appropriate openness to that. Third and finally, I wanna encourage you to be open to the miraculous and the supernatural by praying for the supernatural from time to time. Now, I already said earlier, I think we should ordinarily look for God to meet our needs through natural, physical kind of processes for the most part. But when someone is in a desperate situation or you find yourself in a desperate situation, I wanna encourage you to pray for the miraculous and not be so quick to slap a your will be done on it. I wanna invite you to pray with emotional skin in the game as if God actually parted the Red Sea, as if he could actually heal that marriage, deliver someone of cancer, move the mountains. Amen. I wanna encourage you to pray with an emotional investment instead of a stoic, self-protective, your will be done prayer. We should pray your will be done. But if God can work the miraculous, we should pray in such a way. Finally today, why does God perform miracles? The answer to this is pretty simple. God works miracles ultimately for his own Glory. We read about this time and time again. Exodus 14, 4. I'll harden Pharaoh's heart, but I will gain glory for myself. Exodus 14, 18. The Egyptians will know that I am Lord. I will gain glory through Pharaoh. Exodus 9, chapter 16. God says to Pharaoh, I raised you up so that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the world. Listen. God works in the world for his own glory. 
And if you go forward to the book of Joshua, when the spies get to the land, Rahab takes them in. She protects them. Why does she do it? She does it. This is what she says. Because we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea when you came out of Egypt. And when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven and on the earth below. Very quickly as we close Grace Fellowship, I wanna tell you just very candidly, when God blesses us, when God delivers us, when God works supernaturally in our lives, he is expecting us to tell others. He's expecting us to spread his glory around. He's expecting us to praise him as we're going to do in just a moment with more affection, more abandon. And hear me today, when God blesses us, when God delivers us, when God pours out his goodness on us, if we fail to use our lips to glorify him, we perform an abortion on his blessings in our lives. God works for his glory. May it never be said of us that we defraud or defame God or suppress what he has done by being silent. Tell others, tell your family, find appropriate ways to tell the lost around you. And when we come together on Sundays to worship, worship like you mean it. We're gonna have a chance to do that in just a moment. So I wanna invite you, if you're willing and able, to go ahead and stand as we lift our voices, magnify and glorify our great God who reigns forever and ever.